I don't know if you've ever thought that something was yours, uh, only to be told, no, it's not. So, you know, you think in, in the workplace, you might have been thinking that there was rumours around the office, the promotion that was coming up was yours, and then suddenly, someone else gets it. Maybe, you know, you think of relationships, you, know, you, you think it's going well, the future looks bright, and, and then, no, it's all over. It can be absolutely crushing to hear that kind of news. You have an expectation, don't you? You're excited. And then it's all over. It's taken away. It's a quite a cruel illustration, but imagine this if we can. Um, imagine a child. You talked about a birthday present, a particular present, for months on end. They'd drawn pictures of the present that they were expecting. You hadn't said they weren't going to get it, you weren't going to get it. And then on their birthday, in their PJs at the bed, and they open the present and they find nothing. It's crushing, isn't it? And perhaps whatever the circumstances of life, you know that kind of feeling somewhere. You know the pain of it. It's an explosive situation in some ways, but it's exactly what Paul has been leaning to since chapter 2 of the book of uh, Galatians. And his point so far has been twofold. Let me take you through these points. Firstly, he's been showing the Galatians that the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus' life and his substitutionary death and his resurrection, that trusting in that gospel will absolutely save anyone. Jew or Gentile. There's no cultural distinction. That's point one of Galatians, a big point. Secondly, implicit in his teaching of the the gospel of Jesus Christ is that even the most proud, the most religiously able, if you might like to say, often they are the ones who are left out of God's good eternal kingdom. This has been like the the two big messages coming uh, so far in the book of Galatians. So the people he's addressing here, they have a very big expectation to be in part of God's family. But their expectation is about to be blown apart. Uh, What has been implicit is about to become very explicit. And it could be painful, if you like. Paul does this by turning to an illustration from the Old Testament. So he speaks to the Galatians, essentially in their language. The Galatians have been listening to to false teachers who had infiltrated the churches, and and who were wanting to dismiss the freedom that faith in Jesus Christ brought them through that good news message. Christians are free. You might think, well, hey, they don't seem that free. But Christians are free, the Bible tells us. And Christians experience this. We're free because we're no longer trying to keep a bunch of rules in order to be right with God. No, Christians, we solely trust in Jesus Christ, life, death and resurrection. The one who has kept all the rules for us. And his life can be counted as ours through faith. That's the gospel. That law that the Old Testament... um, that the false teachers had been teaching and cherishing and had misinterpreted for the Galatians, that is that Old Testament law that they were looking at and holding on to, that is exactly what Paul is about to expose as so dangerous. It's a freedom-sapping religion that they were teaching. Paul turns to the law, particularly the book of Genesis, and to the story of two of Abraham's sons. 
Why this story in particular, you might ask? Well, Paul knew that the Jews' loudest and, if you like, their proudest boast was that they were children of Abraham. Uh, He's going right to their hearts, to their deepest motivations, where their assurances lay in some ways. It would be like Paul taking uh, an illustration from something that was closest to you. Where you found, think in your own heart, where you find your most, most of your security. Is it in your wealth? Perhaps your education, your background, your job, your property, your whatever it may be. Paul is turning to the deepest, if you like, motivation, assurances of their hearts. So he takes the readers back to Genesis, back to Abraham and two particular sons of Abraham. Now, I want you to flick back. We don't often do this, but flick back. First page of the Bible, if you possibly can. Let's get a bit of context to the, uh, the sons of Abraham that Paul is using here. Let's see where they've come from. Genesis, go back to the um, beginning, let's see. Um, let's go to chapter 3, if we can, to begin with. Here we see humanity, represented by Adam and Eve there, is beginning to turn its back on God. In the garden, we first get Adam and Eve. They reject God's good intention for them and for humanity. By chapter 4, verse 8, flick on if you want to have a look at that, we get the first murder in Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is jealous of Abel because God had looked with favour on him. So we get our first murder. Then we get flicked forward to Genesis chapter 6, if you like. And the Lord saw how great, verse 5, how great man's wickedness was uh, and the earth. And every inclination and thoughts of their hearts was only evil at that time. But then we get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, and we get a glimpse of light, if you like, in Noah. Have a look at that. Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. But, verse 11 of chapter 6 of Genesis, the earth was full of violence still, so comes, here comes God's judgment. It's right, it's fair, and he's going to destroy the world. Verse 13. Noah and his family and the creatures that God sovereignly provides are protected in the ark, and God sovereignly shuts the door behind them. They exit the ark, and God blesses them in chapter 9, verse 1, and then makes a promise to them, a covenant to them. Chapter 9, verse 11, what does he say in Genesis there? He says, never again will all life be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again, he's saying, will I utterly destroy in my righteous anger in this way. What's the sign of the covenant? It's a bow. Obviously, we know it is a rainbow, don't we? We see it Sunday school, there's the rainbow and so on. It's not that in the Hebrew. It's a war bow, a gazette. And God hangs up his war bow, sets it up in the clouds. Never again will he destroy mankind in such a way. Even though he knows there's going to be murder in the following chapters. The war bow in the clouds means there will be no more condemnation, no more judgment for sin. But you're kind of asking at that point, how can that possibly be? How can one side, that is God, be at peace... And the other side, that is humanity, still going to be murdering. And we see what Noah does in just a few moments as he comes out of the ark. Well, I guess the rainbow, if you like, shows us the astonishing secret of God's grace. Because where's the rainbow pointing? Heavenward. The great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once said this. He said, you should have known. He said, you should have known to the congregation. Which way does the rainbow point? It's pointing up. It's pointing to heaven. God has not stopped being a God of judgment and wrath. 
But who gets the arrows of judgment now? Who got the arrows? The suffering servant, Isaiah 53. The Lord Jesus Christ as he stretched out his arms on the cross. You see, God shows himself there that he is infinitely just still. Yet at the same moment, he is infinitely loving. As he points his warbow at his precious and one and only son. And Jesus feels the full force of God's wrath for us if we would put our trust in him. And we did not earn this, nor did Noah. Our relationship with God is simply based on grace. So it's something that we're given. It's not something we deserve at all. And that is the point that Paul has been making again and again and again and again throughout Galatians. Think think back, don't turn to it now, but Galatians chapter 2 verse 15 is this. Know that a man is not justified, that is made right with God, by observing the law, by making, doing lots of things, obeying all the rules, but by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Believing in him. It's a gift of grace, it's undeserved kindness. How do we respond? Look how Noah responds, it's amazing. He comes out of the ark, verse 21 of chapter 9, he gets drunk. And then later, flip forward in a few chapters, um, you see the arrogance of mankind as they begin to think much more highly of themselves than they ought, and they attempt to build a a tower towards the heavens in a place called Babel in chapter 11. But then you get to chapter 12 of of, um, Genesis. We're still there. And God, in his kindness, in his grace, establishes a covenant, a promise with Abraham. It's a threefold covenant, I'm sure you know it well. He promises land, he promises people, and he promises blessing. That is God's favour. And this is the heritage, if you like, that covenant promise to be one of Abraham's people. That's the blessing of which all the false teachers in in Galatians have been like, that's the heritage they're pointing back to and wrongly just trusting in. So what is Paul teaching with this illustration? Because he's about to blow their minds apart. He's going to tell them, if you're going to be a true descendant of Abraham, as in with the covenant of people in Genesis 12, a true son of Abraham is not a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. It isn't, matter, isn't a matter of being an impeccable Jew or, you know, isn't rather someone who, uh, it's not someone who, you know, does all the right things all at the right time. Rather, it is someone who believes and trusts God as Abraham did. How does Paul teach this bombshell with the two sons of Abraham? Let's turn back, if we can, to Galatians uh, chapter 4. That's page 1171. And we see he makes this illustration, he makes his point with the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. Both have the same dad, but they have two major differences. Firstly, they've got different mothers. Ishmael's mother's Hagar, Abraham's slave woman. And Isaac's mother is Sarah, Abraham's wife. Each of their sons, therefore, took after their mother. Because Ishmael, of course, despite having a father as Abraham, he was still born into slavery. But Isaac born of Sarah, was born as a f- into freedom. You see that made point, uh, point is made in verse 22. So they have different mothers, but they're also born into kind of in, different, in different ways. I don't mean in the biological process here, but rather the circumstances that led to their births. 
So in verse 23, Ishmael, born of Hagar, was born in, it says, the ordinary way. Do you see that there? Again, I'm not going to go into details there, but you know what I'm talking about. He was born according to nature. Okay? Then the second half of verse 23, Isaac, born of Sarah, was born as a result of what? A promise. That is against nature. You know what I mean by that, because you'll know the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham, at this stage, when, um, when Isaac was born, was 100 years old. Sarah was barren and around 90-odd. Now, what's the point of the illustration that Paul is using here? He's pointing at, at the people of the Galatia, and I guess to us, he's saying all of us are slaves by nature. But slaves to what? Well... The Bible tells us, and we experience, many of us do, that we're enslaved to living in hostility toward God. It's only when we trust in God's promise that we can be set free, as we pointed out before. The point being of, of this beginning section is that we can either be an Ishmael or an Isaac. We can live by nature, just doing as we wish, going along with however our, our heart, our inclinations kind of point us. Whenever we like, we just follow the way we want to go. We can be like that, like an Ishmael, and that's what he represents. He's a child of nature. Or we can trust God's promise. Uh, an Isaac, if you like. And know from that the freedom that trusting God can bring. That is freedom from any justice that we deserve. That is the bigger lesson, if you like, from these opening verses here. But practically, what else can we draw from here? Now, Abraham, he knew that God had made a covenant with him that included him being the father of a great nation, as many people in that nation as the stars in the sky in Genesis chapter 12. And he knew that that would bring salvation to the world in that family line. But there's a problem he stood beside this woman and she's barren, Sarah. It would take a supernatural act of God to, for a son to come along. What's he going to do? Does he trust God? Or does he just think, oh, I'll try and work it out myself. I'll work towards that and that end goal. I'll sort it out. No, he turned to his young maidservant. It was, that was a totally legal thing to do at that time. But most importantly, Abraham said, no, God, I, I know you've promised this, but I'm going I'm to do things my way. He rejected God's way. I don't know if you, uh, like me this week, just looking at this, have you noticed any other kind of similarities in your life? Uh, we all struggle at times, don't we, to trust God in and with the circumstances of our own lives. Just as Abraham struggled, we will too. But this is much more than just the circumstances of our lives that this applies to. For the two sons, and we'll see now, the two mothers represent, if you like, two ways of trying to be right with God. That is, they illustrate two religions. That comes to our second point on your sheets. Two religions. Paul puts it this way. Let's remind ourselves of those verses, shall we? Let's read verse 24 down to verse 26. Cast your eyes down there if you want to. These things may be taken figuratively... For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Let me just run through it. There's lots of kind of 
This represents this and this and this and so on. Let's go through it quickly if we can. Two women, Hagar, Sarah, they represent two covenants, the two promises of God. The old covenant, which began through Noah, Abraham, and then ratified through Moses, is based on the law. That is, it's basically a load of thou shalt not. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. It's the old covenant. The new covenant, though, is established through Jesus Christ. And it's based on a promise. The difference is that the old covenant, there was a list of instructions how to live. The new covenant established in Christ simply says, I'll live it for you. I'll live it for you. Hagar represents the old covenant. And Sarah represents the new covenant. And the two women also in verse 25 represent the Jerusalem as well. Just to make it really easy for us to understand. But here we go. So Hagar represents the earthly Jerusalem. That was central to Judaism. We'll come back to that in a moment. But understand that the earthly Jerusalem, as it's still today, is central to Judaism. And Sarah represents a heavenly Jerusalem. That is... Peter and Paul and many other places in the New Testament, that is the Christian church. Established now, as a representation here, but that is eternal in heaven. Verse 26, we won't go into this, but she is our mother, speaking of Sarah there. Paul is saying to the Galatians, we as Christians are citizens, not here, but of the heavenly Jerusalem. Yeah, we've got life here, but we live, we belong there. And that is where we live for, and that is our true freedom, if you like. Verse 27, he quotes from Isaiah 54, where God was speaking to the exiles in the 6th century BC as they were about to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And in that passage, he promises his people that they'll be more numerous when they return from exile. Paul's using it, therefore, and showing that though they knew that to be true in part, he's using that verse to say, now with the Christian church, the heavenly Jerusalem, it's true in its whole. They've trusted in the promises of God, and now it is completely true. Now that may be the detail, but what does it mean for us? Runs through it very quickly, but two sons of two mothers, representing two covenants or promises of God, and, the, and also two Jerusalems as well. The point is this, I think, very briefly. It is not enough that you claim to be a child of God in the line of Abraham. However Jewish you may be, or however Christian you may appear, doing all the right kind of things. The incendiary point is this. Who our mother is matters. Put that on in the illustration. Which covenant we trust for salvation matters. Which covenant we trust for salvation matters. That is one covenant. The old covenant gives birth to slaves, as we've seen. People who do not know the freedom from their sin because they're not trusted in Christ to deal with it. Therefore, like many people of the earthly Jerusalem, hence why Paul uses that illustration at that time, they're trusting themselves. And they're making the law, all those do nots do, and so on, they're making the law, if they do so many things, their means of salvation, the way that they get right with God. 
Paul has been making this point throughout the letter here, but he brings it all together here with this illustration. And by sleeping with Hagar, Abraham, what's he doing? He's doing just that. He's trusting himself. He wanted to work to get a son. He was acting in faith. Yes, he was. But the object of his faith was himself and not God. Now, essentially, he's saying, I'll be my own saviour. Thank you very much. We're in a bit of a pickle here. I know we've got a line to kind of a family line to get going that's going to bring salvation to the world. God doesn't seem to be good to his promise, so I'm going to sort it out myself. I'm the saviour here. No, what a mess. We do the same every day, I guess, don't we? We trust ourselves at different times and different places. Every time we fail to trust God, whether it's in the small or the big things in life, we're essentially saying, like with the old covenant, oh, I'll work it out, God. I'll do it my way. And the result is what? I guess you will have experienced it. It's that spiritual, psychological, relational kind of mess. Just think of the results in, in those areas of life where you said, oh no, God, I'll do things my way, thank you very much. Has it been a good way? <coughs> the false teachers may have very proudly considered themselves to be in the family line of Abraham, Sarah and Isaac. They're, We're the children of God. You Galatians, you're going to follow. Come and, come and follow us. We're heirs of the covenant promise. That's what they were saying. But Paul says that they are spiritually descended from a Gentile, outcast, slave woman. Their heart and their approach to, to God is like Abraham with Hagar. The result is Ishmael, mess and slavery. Racially, of course, that they may have been in the line of Sarah, but their hearts are actually like the very people they despise. Are you like them? Do you rely on your own ability? Do you turn aside the grace of God in his new covenant promise in Christ? Funny, isn't it? I've experienced a lot of this over the last week or so. Have you ever noticed how religious people can be the furthest from the freedom of the Lord Jesus Christ? But if you're a Christian here today, this is so confirming. And We're children of Abraham, heirs of the promise, but not by nature. We've received an inheritance by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the big point of verse 27. There's grace available to the barren. And we are all spiritually barren. Uh, but if the gospel is true, then it doesn't matter who you are what you've done or what has been done to you in the past. You may be as spiritually and as morally bankrupt as the marginalised barren woman or single woman would have been in those times. But what Paul is saying here is it, it just doesn't matter. Trust in the covenant that barren Sarah represents and you will bear fruit in your heart and your life Ultimately, eternal life, as you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So very quickly, with one father, there's been two sons, two mothers that represent two religions. And then lastly, there are two ways to respond, two ways to live. I've put there at the end. Third point, last point. We're nearly there. 
Paul reminds his friends in the Galatian church who they are. Verse 28, they've put their faith in Christ. Lovely again, note of his pastoral love for them. Brothers, they are children of the promise. But they've been listening to the false teachers, pulling them back to trusting themselves and trusting their ethnicity, their cultural heritage, and not trusting the new covenant promise in Jesus. But Paul ends this section, I guess I felt in it quite a strange way. That is, he ends, it feels like a, a little pinch of reality. Uh, simply, he says in verse 29 to 31, if we're, we're like Isaac, then you've got to be expect to be treated like Isaac. If you, if you want to be part of, you know, be treated as an Isaac, expect what Isaac lived through. So, two little things. Firstly, we must expect persecution. You see that in verse 29 there. Because even from an early age, we know Ishmael ridiculed and mocked Isaac. You go back to Genesis 21 if you want to have a look at that. And Paul says at the end of verse 29, it's the same now. He's thinking of that when he's writing that. As Ishmael mocked his younger brother. He's saying it's the same now. Oh, that's the first century where he's speaking right into the Galatians. But it's the same now. Today, the gospel has been and always will be threatening to those who seek salvation through obedience to the law, trying to do the good things, be the religious do-gooder to please God. The gospel will always be offensive to those people. Religious people, you see, they're never sure of their standing with God and their insecurity, therefore, makes them very, very hostile towards those who have trusted in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Look at Ishmael and Isaac, if you don't believe me. But most of all, look at Jesus Christ. As you read through the Gospels, and you know them well, many of you do. Who are Jesus' most vehement opponents? He was bitterly opposed by the religious leaders of his time. And he was condemned to death by them. But the persecution in Galatia was not physical. It was false teachers trying to undermine the freedom that the Galatian church knew in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same is true today. I just want to read a little section. I found John Stott's little commentary on Galatians really helpful. Let me just read a short paragraph if I can. I think this is very sobering. If you know John Stott and his very calm nature and the way he writes. Hear what he says here. The persecution of the true church is not always by the world who are strangers, but by our half-brothers, religious people, the nominal church. The greatest enemies of the evangelical, that's the Bible teaching faith today, are not unbelievers, but the church, the establishment, the hierarchy, Isaac is always mocked by the Ishmael. We all must expect persecution if we're to be Isaacs, trusting in Jesus Christ. But, and this is the great way to finish, isn't it? We receive the inheritance. We receive the inheritance. Look at verse 30. Although Isaac received all the scorn and the mockery from his brother, he, he, he was the heir. He was the heir. True heirs of God's promises of eternal blessing are not children by physical descent, 
but through faith. They are children of spiritual descent, children of the promise. Which is it to be? For you. It's kind of this, it's the double lot of Isaac or the double lot of Ishmael. Isaac is mocked, but he receives the eternal inheritance. Two things. Ishmael's, what do they do? They trust themselves in their lives, which may be a little bit more comfortable, but they trust themselves for salvation too. And that is not comfortable at all. Isaac's trust the promise, they trust Christ. Ishmael's, they are self-reliant slaves, essentially. Isaac's, who they reliant on, they're reliant on Christ and therefore are free in him. Be an Isaac. Be an Isaac. Know that paradox of the Christian life, that way of life that knows both honour and dishonour, ill repute and good repute. And Paul put it this way, let me finish with this, as he writes and describes this kind of double lot of Isaac in the Christian life, as he writes to his friends in the church in, in Corinth, he says this in 2 Corinthians 6, though glory, uh, sorry, speaking of the Christian life, he says, through glory and dishonour, bad report and good report, Genuine yet regarded as impostors. Known yet regarded as unknown. Dying and yet we live on. Beaten and yet not killed. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Poor yet making many rich. Have nothing and yet possessing everything. That, my friends, is the paradox of the Christian life. The double lot of Isaac, if you like. There are two ways to live. So please let me urge you today, be an Isaac. Stand as children of the promise in this world, looking to the next and trusting only in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing in a moment some of those words uh, taken from uh, this last section of chapter 4 and also chapter 5 verse 1, which we'll be looking at next week. Do take a moment. uh, We're going to be a moment of quiet prayer that you might consider who... Essentially, who you'd like to be, an Isaac or an Ishmael. Look at the words. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, till the race is finished and the work is done. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. Just a moment of quiet reflection, and I invite Ali to finish up.